time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life. Tonight, I want to talk to you about being a fan or a follower. Now, really, these are really two big, different uh, contrasts, two different things totally all together. So we're going to be talking about that tonight. We're going to dig right in. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 says, If you hold to my teaching... You are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Now, I think, I think every pastor, every youth pastor, kind of gets in a position at one time or another, some probably on a week-to-week basis, where they're sitting behind their desk, and they're thinking to themselves, what in the world do I preach on this week? And out of the corner of their eye, they kind of see their Bible sitting on their desk, like, oh, maybe I should look at that. And they get that, and they turn it open, and they just begin to think about, man, what am I going to preach this week? And, and it's not always that simple just to open it up and begin to, to look at it and begin to just, oh, there it is. That's what we're going to do. I mean, there, there are looming questions in a youth pastor's mind when he thinks about preaching a message. And he, he's thinking to himself, like, how many visitors are we going to have this week? I mean, how can I communicate this correctly? How can I communicate it so that they'll understand? I mean, I want them to come back. I don't want them to get scared off. I mean, how can I make this topic appealing? How can I make it appealing for my people? Is there this big creative illustration that I could use that would get everyone laughing because I don't want to look like a loser standing up here preaching to all these young teenagers. And and for some of you that don't realize, sometimes it's intimidating to talk to you guys, okay? Sometimes it's intimidating. So they're, they're, they're thinking all this stuff through in their office, what they're going to do. And the question comes to mind, man, I wonder, I wonder what Jesus taught when he addressed big crowds of people. That's a great question to ask, right? What did Jesus teach when he addressed big crowds of people? And if you look at John chapter 6, we find Jesus speaking to one of those big groups of people. In fact, that group of people have, has, has grown to more than 5,000. And at this point, Jesus has never been more popular in his ministry, in his earthly ministry. He's never been more popular. Word is spread about his miraculous healings and his inspirational teachings, and thousands, I mean, thousands have showed up on this, on this side of this mountain to hear Jesus speak. They've shown up to cheer Jesus on. All right, that's better, that's better. Come on, come on. Give it up for our fans tonight. They're a little slow on their cue, but that's okay. It's okay. We went over it in 30 seconds. It's good. It's good. All right, we'll do it again. And thousands have shown up to cheer Jesus on. Oh, that's great. Good job. Good job. Second run's always better. All right. After teaching all day, Jesus understands that people are probably getting hungry. All right. He's been teaching the people all day. So he turns to his trusted disciples and he asks, man, what are these people going to eat? And one of his, one of his disciples, Philip, who hasn't quite been hit on the head with that faith stick yet, he tells Jesus that even with eight months wages, we would not have enough to feed all of these people. And from Philip's perspective, there isn't any way out of this dilemma. 
except to send the people away to fend for themselves. But another disciple, his name was Andrew. He's been scanning the crowd, and he tells Jesus about a boy he saw who had a sack lunch. They bring the boy to Jesus. Jesus prays over the food. He blesses it, and he feeds the whole lot of people. He feeds, he feeds all of them, all 5,000. In fact, Scripture says that not only did he feed 5,000, not only did the, did the loaves of bread and the fish, not only did they multiply, but they had 12 baskets of food left over after everyone had been fed and everyone was full, bellies sticking out to here, rolling around on the side of that mountain because they were so full. So after dinner, after dinner, rolling around on the mountain, the crowds, they decide to camp out. They decide to camp out for the night so they can see Jesus the next day, so they can hear more. And isn't that just like a bunch of fans to camp out? That's much better. That's much better. All right? So they're camping out on the side of that mountain. I mean, I don't know if you get, you guys might not be, well, how many of you went to see the new Star Wars movies when they first came out? Are you guys old enough to even, I mean, probably like 10 years ago. I don't know if you saw Star Wars back then when you were like six. So, I mean, when the new Star Wars movie came out, I remember, I mean, fans were dressed up to the max like Star Wars figures. It was crazy. I mean, you would walk into the movie theaters and you thought you were in the movie Star Wars. I mean, over there's Jabba the Hutt, and you're like, whoa, gained some weight, Jabba. You know, and you know, you know, Chewbacca's over here, and you got Luke Skywalker, and there's like 46 Princess Leia's running around, and I mean, it's, it was crazy walking in to a movie theater at that time when all that stuff was going. I mean, there were just fans everywhere, fans. And when Harry Potter came out, this is unfortunate. Don't scream, but we'll go have a counseling session. When Harry Potter came out, unfortunately, there were little kids dressed up like witches and wizards, and they had little lightning bolts on their foreheads, which, by the way, is the ancient symbol of Satanism. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. And all these young people, all these little children, and their parents are standing outside of bookstores all night waiting for that next edition to come out. Before big football games, you have fans arriving several hours early with faces and bodies painted, wearing all their team's bling, tailgating, just waiting for their team to run on to the field. How many Ohio State Buckeye fans are there in here? Oh, my, my people. My people. There's like three of us. That's awesome. We got to recruit. We got to recruit. Back in the days of Jesus, there were fans too. When we were talking about all these different things and the fans of stuff, I mean, there were fans back in Jesus too. And, and they slept out all night so they could spend the next day with Jesus. And the next morning, the crowd awakens, and guess what? What happens when you wake up? You're hungry again. You're hungry again. And they look around for Jesus, a.k.a. their meal ticket, but he's nowhere to be found. I mean, they're hoping for an encore performance and eventually figure it out that Jesus and his disciples have crossed to the other side. I mean, they've gotten in the boats, they've traveled down the Sea of Galilee a little ways, and they're not in any seeable distance. They're not visible. I mean, they've, they've gone. The crowds are like, oh man, what do we do now? We're hungry. See, they missed 
their chance for breakfast. I mean, so all the crowds, they decided to go catch up with Jesus. And when, by the time they caught up with him, it was already lunchtime. I mean, they were already there, so it was lunchtime. But Jesus decides to shut down the lunch buffet. And we read about it in verse 26. Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus knows that these people are not going to all the trouble and sacrifice because they are following him. Because they want to follow him. But because they want him to feed them. That's why they're running after Jesus. It wasn't Jesus they wanted. They were only interested in what he could do for them. In verse 35, Jesus, in his Jesus-like way, Jesus offers himself. But the question becomes, would that be enough? Would Jesus be enough to satisfy the current culture? It says in verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And suddenly, seafood and biscuits, they aren't on the menu anymore. They're not there. Jesus is the only thing that is on the menu. And the crowd, the crowd has a decision to make. The decision is, will Jesus be enough to satisfy? Is Jesus enough to satisfy us? To cure our hunger? Or are we going to go looking for something else? We can read their answer at the end of chapter, uh, of chapter 6 in John. John chapter 6, verse 66 says, From this time, this is a sad scripture right here. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of those who claimed to follow Jesus turned out to be just fans. They walked away. They turned away. They went home. Jesus, he wasn't enough. You know, I was in the Springs this past June with uh, my students from my previous church. We were here at the June conference, and we were walking around the Briargate Plaza, and we passed a caramel apple store. Do any of you guys know where that caramel apple store is? Feel my friends who like unhealthy food. That caramel apple store. Man, I went into that caramel apple store, and I saw caramel apples rolled and dipped in every kind of sugary, unhealthy perfection I could think of. I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing. And tonight, for you, I could sugarcoat Jesus really well. I could sugarcoat him. I could tell you that he's going to make everything better in your life, that you're going to live in eternity with him, that you're going to talk about the wonders of heaven, and, and we're, going to, we're going to just describe the wonders. I can make him look really inviting. I can make Jesus look really delicious to your souls. But in this passage of Scripture, you don't see Jesus sugarcoating anything. You don't see Jesus chasing after the so-called followers who turned out to just be fans who are walking away from him now. You don't see that. He doesn't soften his message to make himself look more appealing. He doesn't send the disciples chasing after them with a tray of caramel apples saying, hey, come back, you can dip and roll your own. I mean, he's, he's not going after them. He seems okay that his popularity is plummeting. 
It's okay that so many are walking away. And this passage of Scripture makes it clear that the size of the crowd is not what mattered to Jesus. But instead, it was the level of their commitment. I've been in many churches over my time. I've heard a lot of sermons trying, trying to make following Jesus as comfortable and as appealing and as convenient as possible. And we're just not going to lie to you here at DSM. We're not going to do that. We're going to tell you the truth. The staff here is committed to telling you the truth, to preaching the gospel, to preaching what's in the word of God. And the problem is that there are times, many times, when following Jesus is not comfortable, it's not appealing. I'm going to tell you something, it's anything but convenient. Luke chapter 29 verse, or Luke chapter 9 verse 23 says, and if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. Now remember, the cross is an instrument of death, right? I mean, instrument of death. We got to carry it. And if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you will find it. You will save it. Following Jesus isn't always the easiest thing to do. And if it is easy for you, chances are you're not really following him. Chances are you're probably just a fan. And you see, fans get all excited about God. They get all excited about him on Sunday mornings. They get all excited about him on Wednesday nights. But, and maybe even times when they're around a bunch of other followers. Maybe even a bunch of other fans. They get all excited at those times. But in the routine of their lives, the minute they walk out those doors, it's right back to, it's all about me. My wants. My desires. What's going to make me happy now? It's about me. So let's talk about what it really means to follow Jesus. What's it mean to really follow, authentically follow Christ? In order to do this, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I a follower or just a fan? Ask yourself that right now. Not out loud, just in your head. Am I a follower or am I just a fan? Most people in the nation's youth groups today, if you ask them about Jesus, they would most definitely say they're a follower of Christ. But in reality, their life proves that they're just fans. And sometimes it's hard to determine between true followers and fans. I mean, there are fans out there who really have the Christian perception down. I mean, we all know them. I mean, they know the right things to say. They have the, the right answers. They know what to do and how to act when people are around. But when we start defining a true follower of Christ, a real disciple, these are the questions I'm not going to ask you. Okay? These are the questions I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to ask you, do you have a Jesus fish on the back of your car? I'm not going to ask you, are your parents or grandparents Christians? I'm not going to ask you if you raised your hand at the end of a sermon one time to receive Christ. I'm not going to ask you if you repeated a prayer after a preacher. I'm not going to ask you if you came forward after a 20-minute version of I'm coming your way. I'm not going to ask you that. I'm not going to ask you if you, throw, if you own three Bibles or more, if you have one in every room of your house. I'm not going to ask you that. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever appeared in a church directory. I'm not going to ask you if you ever attended VBS when you were a kid or church camp growing up. I'm not going to ask you if your ringtone is a worship song. When you pray, I'm not going to ask you if you can use five synonyms for God. 
I'm not going to ask you if you've ever worn witness wear. I'm not going to ask you if you read the only real version of the Bible, which is the King James Version. I'm not going to ask you, by the way, I don't read the King James Version. I can't understand it. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever kissed dating goodbye. I'm not going to ask you that. (laughs) Oh, that was great. I'm not going to ask you, does your Facebook read Christ follower under the profile? I'm not going to ask you, did you receive your purpose-driven life in 40 days or less? I'm not going to ask you if you say bless their heart before you talk badly and poorly about someone. I'm not going to ask you if you understand phrases like traveling mercies or sword drills or if you have three trophies or more from Bible quizzing competitions. Four. (laughs) David's got four. Angelic. (laughs) I'm not going to ask you these questions. I mean, many of us, if asked, would quickly say, yes, yes, I am a follower of Christ. But I'm not really sure that we understand what we're saying. I mean, there's a passage of Scripture that haunts me sometimes as a pastor. I want to read it to you. It's Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. It says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And on judgment day, many will say to me, this is the part that gets me every time. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. I mean, they're calling him by name. Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed miracles in your name. But I will reply to you, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Ouch. I mean, it takes a certain level of anointing to cast the demon out. It takes some type of intimacy with God to prophesy. I mean, if it's right, if it's correct. I mean... There's got to be some type of knowledge and understanding if you're laying your hands on people and you're healing them and you're seeing miracles happen before your eyes. But in the scripture, I feel like Jesus is saying, this isn't what matters. What matters is your commitment to me. You see, that, that passage of scripture is what you would say the unedited version of the gospel. Sometimes as Christians, we read only the things in Scripture that make us feel good. Like the passage in Romans 8, talking about how the author is convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, not death, nor life, angels or demons, fears or for today, nor worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of all of hell can separate us from God's love. Now that is an absolutely true passage of Scripture. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. But God's love alone doesn't make you a disciple or guarantee you heaven. He provided the way for you through love by the cross. I mean, John 3, 16, probably the most quoted, most popular scripture in all of history. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But it's your choice to follow him. I think of Peter. Man, when Jesus called Peter, was it Peter and Andrew? When he called them, man, they dropped their nets. 
They left their livelihood. They left everything. They left their dad in the boat. I mean, come on. Jesus started walking and they started following. I mean, it was an all or nothing answer. All or nothing answer. So where do we start determining if we, when we individualize this to ourselves, whether we are a follower of Christ or just a fan? When do we, how do we determine this? How do we decide this if, even if, something, uh, if, even if it's something you want to consider? It might be scary to you to consider it because you might not like the results that you find. Only fans or followers. So here's one of the ways that I think we can start this. We can start by having the famous DTR talk with Jesus. Now, many of you may be wondering what DTR stands for. I know the first time I saw those initials, I didn't have a clue what it stood for, but I understood it after somebody explained it to me. The DTR talk with Jesus, and some of you recognize what DTR stands for, and if you're not sure, let me put it to you this way. For a young man involved in a romantic relationship, these letters are often enough to strike fear. Fear. Fear in his heart. Fear. I mean, he dreads the DTR talk. In fact, many young men and young women will postpone and run away from and put off the DTR talk for as long as possible. I've even known a few guys who have terminated the relationship when they just sensed that the DTR talk was imminent, that it was on its way, that it was coming. It was just a matter of days. He was going to have to have it. He said, oh, I'm getting out of here. I'm gone. DTR stands for define the relationship. Ha okay. <laughs> ha, my guys kept you hanging. You're just hanging. Define the relationship. This is the official talk that takes place at some point in every romantic relationship to determine the level of commitment. It's the talk you have when you want to see where things stand and find out if what you have is real. <laughs> it's the DTR talk. Young man in high school had his first date with a young lady he didn't know very well, and they sat down in a booth at a restaurant, and he began that awkward, you know, that awkward first date conversation. And during the appetizer, you know, he learned all about her family, and while enjoying the main course, he learned about her favorite movies and some of the entertainment things that she liked, and, and then at dessert it happened. First date, dessert! It happened. The dreaded DTR talk on the first date. The young lady looked at him and asked, where do you see this relationship going? And in shock and awe, the date ended there soon after, and they never saw date number two. It was the DTR talk right out of the gate. Ladies, you can't do that. Guys, you cannot do that either. <laughs> it will backfire. I mean, I remember when Holly and I were, were dating, and, and Holly and I met in Mexico on a missions trip, and we were, we were, it was great, yeah, it was great. You know, I lived in Columbus, she lived in Louisiana, we met in Mexico, three days later after we met, I called her up, I said, hey, if I fly you up to Ohio, will you come up and spend a week with me up there? And of course she said yes, and, and she came up, and we spent a week, and things, you know, things went well, I mean, I liked her, I mean, things were going well. So, you know, this was a long-distance thing. So a couple months into this, you know, we'd be talking a lot on the phone. I mean, we were, you know, sharing stories, you know, starting to get closer. And I remember, I remember when she said, I think I'm falling in love with you. 
My hair stood on end. I had cold sweat running down my face. I didn't even know what to say. And it was instant. It was instant. I'm like, oh no, what do I do? What do I do? I, I wasn't expecting this. I wasn't expecting the DTR talk so soon. So I said, that was nice of you. I can't really remember how that conversation went, but that's my version. I'm sticking to it. The DTR talk. Defining the relationship can be an awkward moment. It really can. But there comes a time when you have to define the relationship. (laughs) I love it. I want to hear about this. Yes, it can be uncomfortable, but eventually every healthy relationship reaches a point where that DTR talk, where you have to define the relationship, I mean, it, it, it has to be done. It's needed. It's needed. I mean, is this relationship, is it casual or is it committed? Have things moved past infatuation and admiration towards a deeper devotion and dedication? I mean, you need to intentionally evaluate the state of the relationship and your level of commitment to the person. So here's what I want you to do. I want you in your mind to picture yourself walking into a local coffee shop. I'm picturing the one right there at uh, Union and Briargate, local Starbucks coffee shop. Picture yourself walking into that coffee shop. You grab a snack, maybe a little breakfast sandwich. You grab a drink, and then you walk towards the back where it isn't crowded, and you find a seat at one of those small little round tables, and you begin to take small, sweet, relaxing sips of your coffee. Enjoying just a few quiet moments. Now imagine, imagine that Jesus comes in and he sits down next to you. Now you know it's him because he's got a royal purple sash. He's got this white robe he's wearing. He's barefoot and there's this slight yellow glow. I mean, there is no mistaking that this is Jesus. This is Jesus, all right? He sits down beside you. And in an awkward moment, he just sits and he looks at you. He stares deeply into your eyes, those loving eyes of his. And in an awkward moment, you try to break the science by asking him to turn your coffee into wine. He gives you the same look he used to give to Peter when he asked stupid questions. And before he has a chance to respond, you suddenly realize you haven't, you haven't prayed for your breakfast sandwich yet. And you're like, oh, no, he knows this. He knows everything. Oh, what am I going to do? Oh, I should pray real quick. I should pray. So you decide to pray out loud because it just seems appropriate. I mean, you got Jesus sitting beside you and hoping that Jesus will be impressed by your prayer. And you start off, three things that we pray. To love thee more dearly. To see thee more clearly. To follow thee more nearly day by day by day. And you quickly say amen because you realize you're quoting Ben Stiller from Meet the Parents. And it's just not working for you. And before you even have a chance to destroy this conversation anymore, Jesus skips past all the small talk, oops, and gets right to the point. He looks at you in the eye and he says, it's time we define this relationship. He wants to know how you feel about him. Is your relationship with Jesus exclusive? Is it just a casual weekend thing or has it moved past that? I mean, how would your relationship with him be defined? What exactly is your level of commitment? And whether you've 
called yourself a Christian since childhood or all of this is new to you, Jesus would clearly define what kind of relationship that he wants to have with you. It would be clearly defined for you. He would not sugarcoat it. He would not serve it to you like a caramel apple. He wouldn't dress it up and make himself look inviting and worry-free. He would tell you exactly what it means to follow him. As you're in the coffee shop listening to Jesus give you the unedited version of what kind of relationship he wants with you, I can't help but wonder if that question, man, am I a follower of Jesus, would be a little more challenging to answer at that point. It may seem that there are many followers of Jesus, but if they were honest with themselves in defining the relationship that they have with him, I'm not sure it would be accurate to describe them as followers. It seems to me that there's a more suitable word to describe them, that they're not followers of Jesus, they're just fans of Jesus. The most basic definition of a fan, according to Webster, is an enthusiastic admirer. An enthusiastic admirer. I mean, it's the guy who goes to the football game with no shirt and a painted chest. He sits in the stands and he cheers for his team. He has a signed jersey hanging up on his wall. He's got bumper stickers on his car, but he's never in the game. He never breaks a sweat. He never takes a hit. He knows all about the players. He knows all the stats. He yells, he cheers, but nothing is ever really required of him. There's no sacrifice that he has to make. And the truth is, as excited as he seems, if the team he's cheering for starts to let him down, has a few off seasons, you can expect him to jump off the fan wagon and begin cheering for some other team. He's just an enthusiastic admirer. It happened in Detroit for like 15 years with the Detroit Lions. Just an enthusiastic admirer. And honestly, I think Jesus has a lot of fans these days. I mean, you've probably noticed them. You've probably seen them. I mean, I, I see them. Jesus has a lot of fans. Fans who come to church on Sunday mornings, who cheer him on when things are going well, but who walk away when a difficult season comes to their life. Fans who sit safely in the pews, safely in the chairs, cheering, but they know nothing of the sacrifice and of the pain of the field. Fans of Jesus who know all about him, but they don't know him. It's like the teenage girl who never misses Hollywood access. She always picks up the latest People magazine or the latest Inquirer. She's a huge fan of some actress, and this teenager uh, not only knows every movie star or, or, or every movie the star has been in, I mean, she knows what high school the actress went to. She knows the birthday of the actress. She knows the name of the actress's first boyfriend. She even knows what this actress's real hair color is, which is something the actress can't remember herself. I mean, she knows all of this stuff. She's a huge fan, but she's just a fan. She's an enthusiastic admirer because she knows all about the actress, but she does not know the actress. Are you just a fan or are you a follower? Are you a disciple of Christ who picks up his cross for better or worse in this marriage relationship with our Savior? Has your relationship gone past what Jesus can do for you and move to what to your life is all about him? If you classified yourself as a follower, a disciple of Christ, does your everyday life reflect it 
Are you intentional with your time and with your relationships? Does the way you spend your money reflect that you are a true disciple of Christ? What, what about your priorities? What about your motives? Are they wrapped around Christ? Is your life fully surrendered to Christ? Fan or follower? Tonight there are many of you sitting in the chairs who are true followers of Christ. I mean, I've seen it in you. I mean, you're committed for better or worse. You've chosen to serve God with all your heart. You're dedicated to bring him glory, to worship him, to honor him in all you do. And as we're thinking about where we stand, there's one story I want you to hear from one of our newest volunteers. His name is Mark. Mark, why don't you come on up? Grab that mic right there. Let's give Mark a big hand. I feel like I was just, the first time I met Mark, he began to share his story, and I was so impressed. I was so impressed. It should be on. Check, check. One, two. Why am I doing this? I got a mic here. Yo. Check. All right, there, oh, there we go. go. And I was so impressed with this. I was so impressed with the choices he was making in those moments. And I want him just to share a little bit about one of the choices that he made that changed the direction of his life. Yeah, so hey guys, uh, my name is Mark Cosell. Like John said, uh, fairly new here. Um, I had a very defining, hi, I had a very defining moment in my life, which is very recently, and I, I just kind of want to give you a little background of that. Um, all my life, I've, I've dreamed of being a professional athlete. Um, you know, I, I felt like that was my calling, and uh, I, I played Division One college soccer, won uh, conference championships, and, you know, made it to the NCAA tournament a couple times, and and it was great. Um, I graduated, and I started to uh, pursue that dream. I started also grad school at UCCCS, and uh, I, went, I went to a combine. And what a combine is, is you show up, you know, they invite players, and there's professional scouts and coaches there. And if they like you, they can talk to you. And I got invited to uh, try out with three MLS teams, and I'm just like, yes, hallelujah. You know, it's like my dream. It's like I have it in my hand, and all I have to do is perform. Um, and God clearly spoke to me and he said, no. And, uh, I, I was devastated. I was still thinking about going. Um, I was about ready to go for my first trip. You know, giant snowstorm came in, all my flights were canceled and the tryout was canceled. And he clearly said to me, no, I, I want you to go into ministry. And I'm like, what? Ministry? And it's like, okay, I've been playing soccer since I was two I'm 23 right now, so 21 years of my life. Over 90% of my life I've dedicated to soccer, you know, and, and, and I have a business degree. You want me to go into ministry? Like, what are you talking about? You know, it's like, it's like I have a good thing going on. Have you ever seen Evan Almighty? Anyone? Okay, but you know the part where Evan Baxter, God comes to him, and uh, God says, I want you to build me an ark. And Evan says, well, God, I have good things going on here, you know? It's like, I'm a congressman, I got family, and God starts laughing, just like, ha, <laughs> ah, your plans, good one. Yeah, I had that moment. I'm like, this isn't funny, God. You know, this is my life. It's not funny. You know, and so the Lord brought me to 1 Samuel 15, 22. And, uh, and what it says, this is Samuel talking, he says, does, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Surely not. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And, man, that, that, that really struck me. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And so the next morning in my daily devotional, it was John 14, 15. That's what it was about. 
And it was Jesus talking. He says, if you love me, you obey what I command. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit asked me, he's like, Mark, do you love me? Yes. <laughs> and I was waiting for a reply, but I didn't get one. It's because I knew it. Then you obey what I command. Um, it's okay. I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to do this. I really don't. And I was reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I came across Luke 22 and verse 42. And in this moment, Jesus was praying on the Mount of Olives. You know, Judas was coming to betray him. His disciples were all asleep. And he was praying to God. He said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. You know, and that, I just had a revelation of what that meant. You know, it's like Jesus said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die. You know, if someone said to me, hey, would you like to be betrayed, beaten, whipped, crucified, you know, and suffer like the worst, the worst death this earth has ever known? No, I would, <laughs> I will not be partaking in that. And then he says, nevertheless, your will, not my will be done. I just pierced my heart in that moment. You know, it's like, I don't want to do this, but your will, not my will be done. So I gave it up. I gave up my dream, uh, just completely 180. And uh, that, was, that was in January. And ever since, I've been started serving and volunteering in New Life. And God has just blessed me so much. And what comes to mind is Hebrews 11, 6. And uh, God says, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And uh, Roman, Romans 8, 28. And for we know that God works all things for good for those who love him and called according to his purpose. And, you know, God has just blessed me so much here. And my relationship with God right now is, is wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And I, I just want to tell you that you know, it, it's hard sometimes. It really is. Matthew seven fourteen says, Narrow is the path that leads to life, and few find it. it it's difficult. It really is. And, man, I, I just gave up my life. I just gave it up. And I just want to encourage you. Like, it is difficult, you know, but God will reward you for being obedient. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So just, just fall on Jesus. You know, he is the prime example. Not only did he sacrifice himself for us, but he was obedient to God. You know, and I, I look at Jesus and say, that's the least I could do for you since you did that for me. So I just want to encourage you. Also, if you, if you want to talk to me, going through a hard time, if you need prayer, just hunt me down. I'd be happy to talk to you. So thank you. I love my version of Mark's story. Mark gave up kicking round soccer balls to kick Satan in the face. He gave up his dream, childhood dream, for a better dream. And I'm believing with Mark that he's going to be a great influencer among this generation. I'm believing as God continues to transform his heart and teach him and equip him many lives are going to be changed and affected because someone chose to be a follower and not just a favor. Where are you tonight? 
just a fan of Jesus? As we've been talking tonight, I'm sure things have been going through your mind. How committed am I? Would Jesus look at me and would I be okay with the DTR talk? Would I be okay classifying myself as a follower? Some of you in here tonight, you've never received Christ in your life. You've never accepted him. You've never received him into your heart. You've never repented and confessed your sins before him. and, And he's never had the opportunity to transform and change your life forever. I want to give you that opportunity tonight. You have never accepted Christ. But I'm telling you something. He's had his eyes on you since the beginning. He's been watching you. He's been running hard after you. No matter how hard you run away from him, you can't outrun him. He's going to catch you. He's going to speak his life. He's going to speak life into you. He's going to speak his heart to you. He's he's going to tell you how much he loves you. He's going to remind you of what he chose. Because he chose to also follow his father's will. He chose the cross so that you and I could be rescued. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could be saved from our sin. So that we could have an intimate relationship with Jesus. We don't have to be afraid of defining the relationship. God's defining it for us. Because we love him. We desire him. We're hungry for him. We're not hungry for what he can do for us. We're hungry for him. The person, the person of Jesus Christ. And when times get tough in our lives, here's how you define a follower. When times get tough, they don't get off the bandwagon. They press even harder. They push in even harder. If they're in the darkest valley of their life and they can't even walk anymore, they're on their knees and they're crawling towards Jesus. Because he's their hope. He's everything to them. He's life itself to them. He's more important than life. It's Jesus. Are we fans? Or are we followers? And DSM, I don't want to be fans. I don't want to be surrounded by fans. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to walk this journey with fans. I want, I want to be surrounded by followers. I, I want them to teach me. I, I want to teach them. I want to, I want to follow after Jesus because I believe Jesus has such incredible plans for you. Not just when you grow up. Not just when you get out of college. Not just when you get a family of your own. Man, he's got amazing plans for you right now. In this moment, this week, several are going to Trinidad and Tobago. I'm telling you, he's got plans. We're going to see miracles. We're going to see salvation. We're going to open the door to that nation for a great revival that will last for decades. That's what I'm believing. That's what I'm expecting. Sorry if I spit on you. I mean, are we fans or are we followers? And over time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life.